Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. The CIA, from its inception, carried out assassinations, coups, torture, and illegal spying and abuse, including of U.S. citizens, many of which were exposed in 1975 by the Church Committee in the Senate and the Pike Committee in the House. Congress attempted to enact laws to curb the widespread criminal activity by the CIA. Senate and House Intelligence Oversight Committees were created, and after the Iran-Contra scandal, a statutory inspector general at the CIA was appointed. But this oversight largely collapsed following the attacks of 9-11 and the so-called War on Terror. The activities of the CIA have once again reverted to the shadows. The CIA, at the same time, has transformed itself into a paramilitary organization with its own armed units and drone program. The U.S. allocates a secret black budget of about $50 billion a year to hide multiple types of clandestine projects carried out by the National Security Agency, the CIA, and other intelligence agencies, usually beyond the scrutiny of Congress. John Kiriakou worked for the CIA from 1990 to 2004, first as an analyst and later as a counterterrorism operations officer overseas in Bahrain, Athens, and Pakistan, where he was the CIA's chief of counterterrorist operations. He led a series of military raids on al-Qaeda safe houses in Pakistan, capturing dozens of suspects, including the 2002 raid that captured Abu Zubaydah, then thought to be the third-ranking member of al-Qaeda. He was also the first CIA officer to publicly confirm that the CIA waterboarded prisoners and that such an action was torture. He confirmed that torture was an official U.S. government policy rather than wrongdoing by a few rogue agents. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted under the Espionage Act by the Obama administration and was sent to prison for two and a half years. Joining me to discuss the CIA, how it has evolved, how it sees its mission, what it does, how it works, and the effects of its clandestine operations around the globe is John Kiriakou. So John, in theory, the CIA is subject to oversight by Congress and uh, the Inspector General throughout uh, the intelligence community, but this oversight has been weakened almost to the point of non-existence. And I wondered if you could talk about uh, the nature of the oversight and the consequences of the lack of oversight. Sure, Chris. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, you're right about oversight. Oversight was a very serious thing uh, beginning in 1975, and it was certainly serious uh, through the Reagan administration into the end of the uh, the 1980s. There were members of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence that took their oversight duties very, very seriously. And uh, that, uh, that began to, to weaken in, in the 90s. And then it changed utterly uh, when, when the 9-11 attacks took place. Uh, now we've got these oversight committees that really act as little more than cheerleaders for the CIA. You know, it's up to these, these members of Congress to tell the CIA, no, you can't do that. No, you can't have a, a torture program or an illegal uh, rendition program 
or an archipelago of secret prisons around the world. You can't transform yourself without congressional approval into a paramilitary organization. Uh, you can't uh, set up an assassination squad that, that travels around the world to just carry out hits of people whose politics you don't like. And we just don't get that kind of oversight anymore. We had the Feinstein report, and the CIA really effectively railroaded her, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, you'll recall, too, that John Brennan, when he was the CIA director, as that report was being uh, researched and written, ordered CIA officers or CIA contractors, it's never really been clear, to hack into the Senate Intelligence Committee's computer systems to see what it was that these, um, these investigators were gathering. And, you know, even though that was referred to the Justice Department in a crimes report, uh, there was never any investigation and certainly never a prosecution. Well, I remember she was quite uh, shaken by Feinstein by that. Oh, yes. Uh, and gave a kind of very chilling press conference that basically said uh, these people are unaccountable. I, I, yeah. I remember correctly. I th yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, Dianne Feinstein had a reputation as being one of the most pro-CIA members of the U.S. Senate. And for her to go onto the floor of the Senate and accuse, in very plain English, the CIA director of committing a crime, a felony, uh, was a very big deal. It was a turning point for her. And, and what are, so what are the consequences of essentially removing this kind of oversight? Yeah, the, the consequences of removing real oversight, true oversight, is you end up with a rogue organization. The nature of the CIA is to push the envelope. The nature is to, to see what it is that they can get away with um, on the one hand. On the other hand, the nature is to try to recruit these members of the oversight committees to make them feel like they're one of the guys. They're, they're part of this secret team. They're insiders. They're all, everybody's working together. And that way you can get away with things that you otherwise wouldn't get away with or, or wouldn't attempt. Well, that's not what the role of an oversight committee is supposed to be. The role of the oversight committee is to say no. The role of the oversight committee is to say, you can't do that because it's illegal. And the committee just doesn't do things like that. I'll, I'll give you one example. When I got uh, home from prison, I was invited to a reception and there was a Democratic senator at this, at this party. He was a member of the, uh, of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And uh, he was not really happy to see me and I was perfectly happy making him feel uncomfortable. So I walked right up to him and he said, hello. And I said, hello, Senator. And I knew him from when I was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff. I said, Senator, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm disappointed uh, that, uh, you know, I couldn't count on your support when all of this went down. And he got very angry and he said, look, it takes all my energy just to not lose my security clearance. And man, that made it completely clear to me that they're afraid of oversight. They're afraid of being threatened by the CIA. They're afraid of losing their security clearances. And so they, they carry out this charade where they pretend to conduct oversight. And then really behind closed doors, they just do what the CIA tells them to do. That's what it's come down to. I just have to go a little off topic because I, I thought you might know, and it's always fascinated me, why they took down Petraeus, because it appears he was clearly taken down. Yeah. You know, I've, I've gone over this in, in my head many, many times. Um, Petraeus was not 
a political figure. Um, and, and I'll tell you, there's there's kind of a history at the CIA of having weak directors who used to be generals or admirals. And the way it was always told to me was you don't want a military man in a position like that because military people have have gotten where they have gotten with four shiny stars on their shoulders by saying yes, sir, for the previous 30 or 35 years. And you don't want somebody to say yes, sir. You want somebody to say, Mr. President, let me tell you what it is we want to do and why we want to do it where you're telling the president what intelligence policy is going to be. And generals and admirals normally don't do things like that. They don't stand up to presidents. And I always wondered if if that, plus the fact that he was just not a political player, was what eventually did him in. Well, having spent a lot of time in the military, I found the IQ levels diminished the higher you went up. Isn't um, that the truth? <laughs> uh, The CIA functions as both uh, an intelligence gathering organization and an organization that carries out operations. And I wondered how this dual focus affects the kinds of intelligence uh, it gathers. Yeah, good question. You know, before 9-11, uh, the whole purpose of operations was to gather intelligence. You implemented an operation because it was going to provide you with a new line of information. Because the job of a CIA officer is to recruit spies to steal secrets. And then you pass those secrets to the analysts so that they can provide the best possible analysis to the policymakers to make the best possible policy. In a perfect world, that's, that's why the CIA exists. But that changed after 9-11. So you've got, you've got a handful of analysts now whose job it is to recruit spies to steal secrets to influence policy. And then most of the directorate of operations to do counterterrorism, counter narcotics, counter proliferation, uh, to go out there, you know, shooting people up or snatching people off the streets to render them to to third countries. It's it's just a completely different place. You mentioned in your intro that the CIA is now a paramilitary organization. I've been making that complaint for many many years. That's exactly what it is. It's a paramilitary organization. And so the people that the CIA is hiring now, the people, you know, most of us used to be hired right out of graduate school uh, because we had advanced degrees from good schools and we spoke foreign languages. That's really not who they're looking for anymore. They're looking for people who were Navy SEALs, Green Berets, uh, you know, special operations forces. They, they maybe did a rotation of the CIA on, uh, on loan from Special Operations Command. You're looking for people who can jump out of planes, rough it in the jungle or the desert, kill people, and then exfiltrate themselves. So the CIA really has changed quite dramatically since 9-11. So I'm wondering if there isn't a danger that intelligence gets distorted and contaminated to justify operations. Oh, very, very much so. You know, the night that we captured Abu Zubaydah, that was, that was obviously the biggest night of my career. And it was one of the most important nights of, of my life, to tell you the truth not just because of the excitement of capturing someone that we had hunted for, for six weeks. Um, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but what I was the most excited about 
was in the Abu Zubaydah raid, we had um, captured, uh, confiscated a copy of the Al-Qaeda training manual in a safe house that was occupied by three members of the Lashkar-e-Tayyaba Pakistani militant group, terrorist group. This was the very first time that we were able to tie Lashkar-e-Tayyaba to Al-Qaeda. So analytically, this was a gigantic leap forward in our understanding of how terrorist groups worked. I was the only person who cared. Nobody cared. All they wanted to know was who we caught and who they were with when we caught them. That was it. Now, the analysts were very, very excited because this answered so many questions. Where was Lashkar Taiba getting their, their weapons and ammunition? Who was funding them? We always feared it was ISI. It turned out it wasn't ISI. It turned out it was Al-Qaeda. But how did they make the connection? What was the, the, the rat line between the two organizations? The analysts were fascinated by this. But in the Directorate of Operations, nobody cared. So there was this move away from analysis. There was a move away from understanding the enemy. And the goal really was to just kill or capture and then move on to the next target. So the National Security Act, 1947, that established the CIA, defined its function as combining, compiling and analyzing raw intelligence to make it useful to the president, the CIA reports to the president. It was supposed to be civilian, nonpartisan, free from the vested interests of the military-industrial complex. Can you explain how it evolved into what's become the executive branch's private army? Oh, yeah. You know, when I first uh, started at the CIA, I was told what you just read, uh, nonpartisan in all capital letters. I sat near a woman uh, in 1995, 1996, who had a, a Bob Dole for president bumper sticker very discreetly in her cubicle. And not only was she ordered to take it down, but, uh, but she was reprimanded for bringing politics into the office. Uh, I, I sat next to people for years and never had the foggiest idea if they were Democrats or Republicans or independents or whatever they were. It, it was never raised. It was never important because we had the mission. And, you know, I don't mean to keep coming back to 9-11, but on the day that 9-11, that the attacks took place, everything changed. Everything. And so it became... You know, it, it really did become the president's private army. I, I remember, I remember uh, Executive Order 12333 being written in stone. It was one of the very first things we were briefed on when we were hired into the agency, that we cannot kill people. We do not and will not kill people. And we will not task others with killing people. Well, within just days of the 9-11 attacks, 12333 was, um, was rescinded. And all of a sudden, we started setting up uh, assassination squads. When I was in the CIA's counterterrorism center, I sat, I don't know, 20 feet away from a guy um, who was very friendly. Uh, he would come in and say, good morning, every day. Morning, guys. I'd say, good morning. Morning, Rick. How are you doing? How was your weekend? How are your kids? And then he would disappear for a week, two weeks at a time. And we just all assumed he was going TDY, temporary duty, like we all did. I, I made... 25 international trips in the, in the one year after the 9-11 attacks. 
And then finally, one day I said to the guy I sat next to, what exactly does he do here? Like he's, I see him all the time. He's very friendly, but I don't really know what he does. And my friend was kind of exasperated. He said, John, he's in charge of the special activities division. You get it? Special activities. And I said, oh, of course. So he would, he would just get on a plane, go to some foreign country, kill people, get back on the plane and come home and just wait for the next assignment. I had, um, I had, Worked in the Middle East for a little while with uh, with a contractor, an old timer, legendary figure by the name of Billy Waugh. Uh, books have been written about Billy, he's such a legendary figure in the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Uh, the guy had been around for for decades, and um, and then he just kind of dropped out of sight. So I ran into him in the hall about six weeks after nine eleven, and I said, "Hey, Billy, haven't seen you in ages. Where have you been?" And he looked around and he said, he whispered to me, I've been in Afghanistan. I said, yeah, what are you doing in Afghanistan? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I've been killing people. What do you think I've been doing? And see, I had been volunteering to go to Afghanistan repeatedly. Like every few days, I'd go into the deputy director of counterterrorism, uh, the counterterrorism center's office saying, I really want to go to Afghanistan. You have to send me to Afghanistan. My Arabic is fluent. And I'm thinking, who do they have? I mean, there are only half a dozen of us that spoke Arabic. Who do they have doing these interrogations? Well, it was that conversation in the hall that made me realize they're not interrogating anybody. They're just killing them. So they didn't need linguists and former analysts like me. They needed people who could pull a trigger, have zero remorse, and then go to the next target and pull the trigger there too. So after 9-11, I was based in Paris covering Al-Qaeda in Europe and North Africa. And I worked a lot with French intelligence. I'm only repeating what they said. Um, I, I, Having spent 20 years abroad, I can tell you once an intelligence service resorts to torture, its intelligence functioning has broken down. Uh, that's what you do as a last resort. Uh, the French argued that they were the only intelligence service that had human assets inside of Al-Qaeda uh, and that the United States uh, was completely blind, that it re re relied primarily on electronic eavesdropping, um, but didn't had not built up the kind of human capital that the French uh, had built up uh, and therefore really didn't know what was going on. I don't know if that's a critique you would agree with. Yes, I would agree with that uh, utterly. I, I have a passage in my first book uh, where I talk about a, a team of of Middle Eastern intelligence officers who came to, he to headquarters, CIA headquarters, on July the 7th, 2001. This was a completely normal, routine visit where uh, they come for a day, we exchange gifts, we give them a, a day of briefings, they get a photo op with the director, I take them to Morton's Steakhouse at the end of the day, and then we do it with somebody else the next day. So uh, July the 7th, I set up a, a series of briefings, and one of the briefings for them was, uh, was on Al-Qaeda. It was supposed to be conducted by a junior analyst. And much to my shock, uh, into the briefing walks Kofor Black, later Ambassador Kofor Black, the director of the CIA's counterterrorism center, and, um, and a woman we used to call the red-headed devil. I, I, won't, I, I ought not to say her name but she was the chief of operations in the Osama bin Laden group. And, um, 
I said, oh, uh, welcome. I, I was so surprised. I said to these Middle Easterners, gentlemen, this is uh, uh, Kofor Black. He's the director of the Counterterrorism Center. And Kofor sat down and, and cut right to the chase. And he said, something terrible is going to happen. We don't know when, we don't know where, but we know it's going to be huge. Uh, we're picking up chatter where where Al-Qaeda's camp commanders are on the phone with their students and, and they're crying and saying, I'll see you in paradise. We're hearing code words for a major attack. Uh, there's going to be a great soccer match. There's going to be a huge wedding. Uh, the the uh, honey salesman is coming with vast quantities of honey. These are all codes for a, a major attack. And he said, I beg you, if you have any sources inside Al-Qaeda, please help us. So afterwards, at the end of the day, I sent these guys back to their hotel before the dinner, and I went to Kofor's office to thank him for taking the time. And I said, Kofor, I've, I've got to ask you, because I wasn't working on Al-Qaeda at the time. I said, was that for their benefit or were you serious? And he said, oh no, I was serious. He said, we don't have any sources inside Al-Qaeda and we know that something terrible is coming. I covered the war in Kosovo and made the first trip with members of the Kosovo Liberation Army and then met with Wes Clark afterwards, who was the head of NATO. And he was asking me what kind of weapons they had and how many there were. And he slammed his hand down on the desk and he said, Langley doesn't have anybody on the ground. Nope. Nope. That's quite common. And they rely far, far too much on electronic eavesdropping. You know, you can't have NSA do all of your work for you. That, that's, not, that's not a full complement of intelligence. So, Frank Church, this is after going through the heavily redacted CIA documents that were provided to the Church Committee in 75. This is how he defines covert activity. Quote, a semantic disguise for murder, coercion, blackmail, bribery, the spreading of lies, and consorting with known torturers and international terrorists. Is that accurate? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, that is, that is accurate. You know, I, I've got to give uh, credit to, to Bill Clinton um, in this question, because when Bill Clinton was elected president, you remember the, the 1992 election. It was all about the economy, stupid, remember? So uh, Bill Clinton really had very, very little interest in, uh, in the CIA and in foreign policy. Foreign policy just was not his thing. And, he, you know, we were used to briefing the president every single day, six days a week with the president's daily brief. George H.W. Bush had been the CIA director. He had been ambassador to the UN, ambassador to China, and he relished these briefings. And even Ronald Reagan, even as he became, you know, dim in the last two years of his presidency, he got the briefing six days a week. Well, Bill Clinton was briefed twice over the course of his eight-year presidency. He just was not interested. Al Gore was interested, but Clinton wasn't. Well, the one thing that Bill Clinton did at the very start of his presidency was he initiated something called a cull. So he ordered the CIA to, to identify every recruited asset who had some sort of a, a human rights problem in his background and to fire that source, right? Throw them off the payroll, no more meetings, no more talking. We're not dealing with human rights violators. And um, I remember my bosses laughing in the beginning, like this is never, ever going to work. And sure enough, fully one third of the CIA's recruited assets were fired in that call. And for all those eight years of the Clinton presidency, 
there really was respect for human rights. It was something that nobody thought would work. It actually did work. But then, and I hate to keep repeating myself, 9-11 hit. And then all the rules just went right out the window. So I want to talk about blowback. Uh, uh, Afghanistan, you know, being perhaps the um, prime example of that, 1979, when we were supporting the Mujahideen, uh, later became the Taliban. Um, Richard Clark argues, I'm quoting again, the CIA used its classification rules not only to protect its agents, but also to deflect outside scrutiny of its covert operations. Peter Thompson, uh, the former ambassador to the Afghan resistance uh, during the 80s, said that, quote, America's failed policies in Afghanistan flowed in part from the uh, compartmented top-secret isolation in which the CIA always sought to work. Uh, I was in the Balkans when the CIA was kidnapping uh, all sorts of Mujahideen. Many of them were from Egypt. They were sent on black flights back to Egypt. I think almost all of them were killed. Uh, and then we saw, of course, the U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania in 98. That was 224 dead. Uh, the attack on the U.S.'s coal. To most Americans, it came out of nowhere. To those of us who were overseas, uh, we we saw this as blowback. Can you talk about that phenomenon? Yeah, this this was truly blowback. Uh, blowback is is essentially an unintended consequence. But really what it is is the consequence of poor planning and poor execution. You know, the CIA, one of the things that the CIA is, is always guilty of is, is poor planning. Uh, it was drilled into us as soon as, as soon as we went into operations that you have to have a plan and then you have to have a plan B, C, and D. And that's great when you're sitting in a conference room or, you know, writing it in a report, but it's, it's just not really the way things work in real life. And even if you do have a plan B, C, and D, that's not necessarily to say that the policymakers do and that uh, that they're going to do something that you think is the right thing to do. Afghanistan is probably the worst uh, example of blowback in our modern history where you know we had this obsession with communism. I think most Americans don't understand really the government's and the CIA's obsession with communism uh, right up until the end, <laughs> the, the end of communism uh, in Europe, and so in this obsession with communism and this this willingness or, or, or readiness to drive out the Soviets, to drive them out of Afghanistan at all costs, uh, we made a deal with the devil. And then when the Russians were finally driven out of Afghanistan, rather than to try to work with a new Afghan government you know, to, to enhance infrastructure or agriculture or education, we just walked away. It, it was as simple as that. There was no plan B or the plan ended with the defeat of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And so here, here we've radicalized these people. We've pumped hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars worth of of weapons and ammunition and mines and rockets and you name it uh, into this country. And then we just abandoned them. So uh, 
there there should have been no surprise when they morphed into the Taliban with the help of the Pakistani government and the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI. Like, what did we think was going to happen? And then by the time, you know, 9-11 happened, it was, it was just too late. I want to, Central, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan argued that the agency should be dismantled because, as he wrote, it produced catastrophically wrong national intelligence estimates, including, of course, failing to predict the fall of the Shah, collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, it, throughout the Reagan and Bush administration, overstated the size of the Soviet economy by at least 50%. Uh, it led the government on a weapons spending spree that left us the world's largest debtor nation. Uh, and then, of course, we had the disastrous intelligence on Iraq and non-existence of weapons of mass description. I wonder, if, uh, do we need a CIA that so regularly underperforms in comparison to what's often available from scholars and journalists? And if we do, what should be done to reform the CIA? I, I feel very strongly that we do not need a CIA. I think that if we ever did need a CIA, it's long overstayed, it's, uh, it's welcome. Uh, and, and you look at redundancy in intelligence around the U.S. government too, Chris. You've got the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, which does uh, uh, all, all kinds of, of intelligence analysis. Uh, you've got the Defense Department's uh, DHS, Defense Human Services, they recruit spies to steal secrets just like the CIA does. Uh, you have NSA uh, doing all of the electronic uh, eavesdropping. You have DARPA developing the next generation of whatever it is that they do. It's so secret. We don't even know what, what it is that they're working on. Uh, we've got think tanks, uh, most of which are funded and financed by the big defense contractors. We don't we don't need a CIA. And to tell you the truth, there's a, there's a major book waiting to be written on the CIA's analytic failures. You know, we talk all the time about the CIA's operational failures. Those are very well documented. Legacy of Ashes is one of the best books I've ever read. But what we don't talk about is the CIA's analytic failures. And if you go back really to the founding of the CIA in 1947, they've either missed or gotten gotten the analysis wrong on every major event. I mean, we can go back to the Suez crisis. We can go back to the Berlin airlift uh, through uh, the Iraq war and everything that came after it. They, they're wrong about everything. And, and there's never a price to pay for that. They just move on to the next crisis and, and then get that wrong. Well, my favorite obsession is they trot out what the Cardinal in Prague uh, who's been, uh, of course, worked over to say what the communist regime wants him to say, and everybody in the CIA thinks that the Soviets have figured out the drugs for mind control, uh, which sends them off on, you know, dropping even to their own agents, giving them LSD tabs, some of whom jump out of hotel windows and kill yes. themselves. Um, Steve Kinzer wrote a good book on this called uh, Poisoner in chief. Uh, but I think that's what comes when there's no accountability. And also the kinds of figures, Dulles, you know, uh, these are uh, uh, very problematic people. Oh, problematic people who do not have 
the country's best interests at heart. Dulles is probably the best uh, example of this. Dulles, Dulles saw the CIA as his own fiefdom. And what President Eisenhower wanted from him was immaterial. Uh, he and his brother colluded and conspired on, on myriad operations and foreign policy issues, and they didn't care what Eisenhower had to say about it. Well, they were just gangsters for Wall Street, weren't they? That's exactly what they were. Yeah. Yes. So I have to ask this question since I know Oliver Stone. He's convinced the CIA killed JFK. I've never seen that. So is uh, David Talbot and others. I, I've never seen any evidence that backs it up. But what do you think? Um, Oliver once uh, yelled at me that I was full of shit because I said that uh, I said I don't know Oliver I just can't wrap my brain around it I I I, I hope not I hope you're wrong I said I I haven't seen any evidence of it it's certainly an interesting story but I said you know maybe maybe you should look at the uh, Santo Traficante and the role of the mafia in the death of Kennedy and then he exploded you're so full of shit. So I, I never, I've never bought it, but uh, I, I, I was either. curious what you thought. <laughs> All right. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. <laughs>